what is Pegasus and why is it so nefarious? What are the broader implications of the proliferation of the digital spyware industry? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Mu'ain Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with digital rights campaigner Marwa Fatafta. Marwa Fatafta leads Access Now's work on digital rights in the Middle East and North Africa region. She's written extensively on technology, human rights, and internet freedoms in Palestine and the wider MENA region. Previously, Fatafta was the MENA regional advisor at Transparency International and served as a communications manager at the British Consulate General in Jerusalem. She is also a policy analyst at Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. Marwa Fatafta, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Connections. Thank you very much, Maureen. I'm very happy to be on the program today. Um, Marwa, you're a digital rights campaigner and not a software engineer, but I nevertheless want to start by asking you to give us a description of who NSO is and how its Pegasus spyware works. Thank you, Maureen. Um, I'll start with the first part of the question. Um, the NSO Group is one of Israel's largest surveillance tech companies. Um, it was established in 2010, and one of its most notorious uh, surveillance products, which keeps making headlines for all the wrong reasons, is Pegasus. Um, and it's a malicious spyware that hacks phones in order to extract personal information of the target. And we first learned about the Pegasus uh, spyware back in 2016 when um, the Canadian Research Centre based at the University of uh, Toronto Citizen Lab published an investigation that reveals how the Mexican government used the Pegasus spyware to surveil and spy on um, a dozen of Mexican activists, journalists and human rights defenders. And in the same year, um, also, Citizen Lab revealed that uh, the uh, one of the most prominent Emirati activists, Ahmad Mansour, was also um, targeted using uh, Pegasus spyware by um, the UAE government. And unfortunately, um, uh, Mansour is is currently serving a ten-year sentence, a prison sentence, in um, solitary confinement and under inhumane conditions. And about the, how the, the Pegasus uh, spyware works, um, as you said, I'm not a technologist, but I'm really thankful for um, Citizen Lab and Amnesty International and many other organizations that uh, do the forensics and really um, shed light on the mechanics of those spyware. If I can uh, just interrupt you, because they recently published a joint investigation into um, NSO and Pegasus in the last uh, month or two, correct? Correct. Uh, it was um, it was an investigation um, led by Amnesty International and a consortium of media organizations um, and, and and mainly forbidden stories. And it was based on the it's called the Pegasus Project, and it's based on a leaked um, set of of data of fifty thousand uh, phone numbers that are uh, basically persons of interest to certain governments. Um, so these 50,000 phone numbers aren't necessarily, um, haven't been necessarily hacked or um, successfully targeted, but they were marked as persons of interest. So, so it's a suspected it, target list. Exactly. And some of them have actually been successfully hacked. Um, for instance, 
the there was another so after the pegasus project that was revealed in mid-july um two weeks ago there was a new report um done by citizen lab and another organization that is partner of ours uh, called the red line for golf and they show how the bahraini government has used pegasus uh from mid uh, 2020 until february 2022 to successfully hack nine Bahraini activists and political dissidents. And some of those phone numbers actually uh, were cross-checked and, uh, and appear on the Pegasus project list. Mm -hmm. But the 50,000 number, even, even if they weren't successfully hacked, they just show you the, um, the, the width and the spreads of the use of the spire. And that technically anyone could be uh, a potential target using this kind of uh, surveillance superpower. And could you tell us a bit more about how Pegasus works? Does the client um, give a target phone number to NSO, which then hacks the phone on its behalf? Or does the client government or organization um, get a copy of the software and is free to use it as it likes? Um, what's, do, do we know more about, let's say, the, the workings of the program? Yeah, I mean, the NSO claims that, you know, it has nothing to do with um, its software and how, or its spyware and how it's used. Um, but we Sorry, but at the same it. time, they say um, they vet everyone for um, uh, human rights uh, issues and so on. So there seems to be a bit of a contradiction of right. NSO trying yeah. to have it both ways. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, they say that, you know, they decided for in some, in some instances that they won't sell their spyware to X country. But I mean, if you look at Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, I mean, those are one of the most oppressive regimes and authoritarian regimes in the MENA region. And there is no shortage of public knowledge or documentation of their human rights abuses and violations. And so to, to claim that, you know, you only, you vet carefully your clients and you only sell it to governments that um, are in the pursuit of catching terrorists and, and, uh, and criminals is, is, is claptrap. You know, it's, it's, um, it's just an empty claim. And of course they continue to make uh, millions of profits of these human rights uh, violations. But you know, to your question on how exactly this thing works, um, as I said, like I'm not a technologist, but what we know of how this program works is that it infects the device in two ways. Um, one way that requires a bit of maybe social engineering, where you know, you as a as a target would need to interact with um, with a link that is sent to you via text message or via email, for instance. Some of the individuals that were hacked or infected had their phones infected um, were sent a, a DHL uh, shipment tracking link, maybe at a time where they expected a package. Or um, in the case of Ahmed Mansoud or many others, actually, um, they would receive a link um, to uh, read news about human rights violations. So you would think that this is just um, uh, an, an innocent media alert or, or, or link to news, but it's a malicious link. So the moment you click it, your device is infected. And what Pegasus does, it literally has access to everything on your phone. So your contact information, a contact list, your videos, your photos, your emails, your text messages, your geolocation, it can also turn your microphone and, and camera on. So you are being recorded and both as in your conversations and your image and your videos uh, without your knowledge. 
And then the second way uh, how devices can get infected and it's really dangerous and malicious um, is called zero click attacks. And um, it's basically doesn't require any interaction from, from the target. Um, this is a situation where the NSO group would exploit a vulnerability in certain softwares or applications and use that exploit to infect the device. And so, so, they, so they would find um, uh, a fault in the operating system itself and enter that way. Exactly. And hence the name zero click. So you're being infected without your knowledge and without having even a trace. Because sometimes, you know, when in the case of Ahmed Mansoud, he forwarded the text message that he received with the link um, to Citizen Lab. And this is how they uh, started the investigation. Mm -hmm. um, and it's scary to think that just by having an iPhone or any other phone or mobile phone, you might get infected without your knowledge or, or interaction. So there isn't really a way where you can be smart and decide like not to click on any malicious or suspicious links. You can still be targeted and infected, unfortunately. I, I believe um, people first started to become more aware of, of NSO at the time of the gruesome uh, murder of the Saudi journalist and columnist, uh, Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. And I, I don't recall whether it was him or one of his close associates who turned out to have been uh, penetrated by this um, digital spyware. But also moving beyond that, I mean, we've spoken about um, um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, but it's also, um, NSO has a much broader client base. For example, recently we read that um, uh, Morocco has been using it also, and apparently um, uh, surveying both high-placed French as well as Algerian officials, and that this was one among many factors in Algeria's decision recently to sever diplomatic relations with uh, Morocco. But those, again, are, are governments, but there have also been reports of, um, let's say, private entities having access to, uh, to the software. What do we know about that? Yeah, so you've, you know, you've mentioned, we've mentioned the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, Morocco. Um, but I would say that, you know, the NSO group is a digital mercenary selling um, hack for hire type of service um, and, and namely to governments. Um, they sell to governments that wish to have this type, this type of, of surveillance capability. And so what we know right now, so in addition to the governments we've, we've talked about, um, we know that they've sold their spyware to governments in Europe, uh, namely Hungary. Um, there were also previous reports that um, Spain has used this spyware to spy on some Catalan officials. Um, India is one big client of the NSO group. Rwanda, Togo, Azerbaijan, um, I believe Kazakhstan as well. So, and these are just the tip of the iceberg. I believe the the list might have been, you know, could be much longer than those governments. But thanks to well, the and investigations, we um, we've, we've seen recently, we know. And, about and then I think we were also told that, that the US government um, made a conscious decision not to use the spyware because they had concerns that the Israeli intelligence agencies had access um, to information that would be gleaned by Pegasus. Is, is that correct? 
So there, there are, of course, suspicions um, that the information and the intelligence being gathered doesn't only go to the clients, but could also be accessed by the Israeli government. Um, given the close ties between the NSO group and the Israeli government. But so far, there is no concrete evidence to say confidently that we know that the Israeli government has access to this data. Uh, but it's worth to note that the NSO group doesn't sell its spyware to um, countries that are considered to be enemies of Israel or adversaries to Israel, so for instance, Iran, Qatar, Turkey, um, and I mean, clearly Israel or the NSO group would not sell its technology to a government that would not serve the best interest or the best interest of the Israeli um, foreign policy. And that's because the uh, Israeli defense ministry, I believe, has to authorize NSO for any foreign sale it makes, which some people have said, well, that that proves that this is a weapon system. Correct. So the Israeli Ministry of Defense has to approve and give export licenses to the NSO, but also other surveillance companies. And um, in, in this case, you know, despite of the mounting evidence that these technologies have been used to facilitate human rights abuses um, and also an attempt by civil society to revoke the export license at, um, at courts in Israel, um, it was dismissed because I think, you know, there is definitely a certain pipeline and there is a, an ongoing military industrial complex that benefits the Israeli government, benefits those private companies. And so there is no reason uh, compelling probably enough to the Israeli government, um, noting also their own record on human rights that, you know, concerns about Rwandan activists being detained or a journalist, Saudi journalist being murdered as a result of the use of this technology. Perhaps it's not of concern. Um, and, you know, it leads us also to questions about export licenses and the need for greater control, really, um, using these kind of uh, technologies. Staying on the subject of, um, of Israel for a moment, um, Israel has emerged as a central player in the digital spyware market. Um, in your view, why, why is this so? Um, and who are considered the other main players in this field? Um, so, so there are a number of components which makes Israel kind of a star in the surveillance industry world. Um, one is the, what I mentioned, you know, Israel's surveillance uh, or military industrial complex, and it does rely on a pipeline. You know, we can't talk about Israel's surveillance industry without uh, addressing the big elephant in the room, and that is the Israeli occupation. And Tried and tested. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and that pipeline um, or the supply chain, however you want to call it, it does start from the occupied Palestinian territories, noting that the Israeli army and its surveillance and intelligence activities starts there and uh, primarily led by um, this, this elitist unit, the unit um, A200 of the Israeli defense or the Israeli army. Um, and which, you know, they, they do whatever they do in the occupied territories, surveilling and spying on, on Palestinians. And then after they finish their service, they move on to um, starting their own companies. I mean, right. founders... sorry, just um, just to clarify that um, unit 8200 is uh, basically the Israeli equivalent of the U.S. Um, 
what's it called? National Security Agency. The NSA. Um, which the NSA, which uh, specializes in signals intelligence and electronic warfare. Exactly, and um, you know, fr from what you read about the Unit A two hundred, it seems to be. Um, as you know, you wear it as a sign of pride. You know, it it opens doors for you. It uh, can land you very nice contracts, and it can also allow you to build a company like the NSO Group, and then you know sell your products. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that what starts in the occupied territories ends up uh, being used by other companies around the uh, governments, sorry, around the world to commit human rights violations, and um, there is no legal. Uh, or regulation um, to regulate this kind of revolving door employment. So whatever you kind of learn on the job um, in the occupied territories, you take it uh, later on, uh, use it, package it and sell it. And um, for that, um, I one of the expressions that I really like by an Israeli scholar called Navy Gordon, who's a specialist on Israel's surveillance industry, um, he said that, the, that Israel uh, sells not only products, surveillance products, but it also sells experience, horror experience. And in, in the world post 9-11, you know, Israel came in saying, we know the threat of terrorism very well. And we are, and, and therefore we can sell you the successful technology that allows you to combat terrorism and find criminals and so on and so forth. And that's, um, you know, successful marketing for them. Uh, and that's where governments are, you know, in cases of, of Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and the UAE, before there were even uh, diplomatic ties, they would still find in Israel a, the perfect um, seller of these kind of surveillance technologies, because exactly as you said, you know, it's tried and tested in, um, in, in, in the occupied territories. And so it's a mixed bag, really, of a lot, you know, those individuals being able to set up companies and there are no legal barriers to that kind of activity and then later on when you you know as we discussed how israel and the israeli ministry of defense is is um effectively licensing these companies and despite of efforts and advocacy by civil society groups it continues to do so um i mean we've seen after the pixels project revelations which have caused massive scandals um it's still business as usual. I mean, the Israeli government, of course, they they try to um, quote unquote raid the offices of of the NSO group in Herzliya, but to this me, was a famous visit a few weeks ago. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's it's theatrics, really. Um, there is no short of of evidence of how these technologies are facilitating egregious human rights violations, and yet they continue. Um, business as usual. And, and do we have an indication um, who the other main players are in this field? Um, are there other countries that are particularly well known for the development of uh, digital, for the development and, and sale, I should add, of digital spyware? Yeah, um, so there has been a number of companies that uh, were implicated also in human rights violations, Hacking Team, for instance, uh, Finn Fisher, which is a German company, um, and, and companies coming uh, from, from the UK. Um, there were recently also a French company, I can't remember the exact name, but its CEO was, um, uh, was implicated in human rights violations in Libya. Mm -hmm. So 
the, so so these are also um, cases of uh, of of such companies selling uh, their digital spyware primarily to governments or um, or militias. But I think what we've seen less of is um, is records of of this kind of um, uh, digital operations being made available to the private sector. Is is it because we don't know? Is it because it's of limited use to multinational corporations? Um, what are your views on that? So, what we you know, the Pegasus project revelations and um, the previous reports we discussed reveal a number of pressing issues. One is that the surveillance industry, and here I mean private companies, cannot be trusted to regulate and police their own activities. They, you know, those companies that we've mentioned, the NSO, Hacking Team, FinFisher, those are only the tip of the iceberg. Those are the, the companies that we know of because of leaks and because of investigations. Um, but this industry is, is running um, under a veil of secrecy. So this highlights the need for transparency, transparency on the development, on the sale, on the transfer and export of those technologies. Well, and and let, let me um, then perhaps expand on that a bit um, for, for you to consider. Um, which is basically the broader question that you've just addressed, and also, you know, given given the consequences you've outlined about what can and should be done about such spyware programs. Uh, many people have advocated a kind of Fifth Geneva Convention, um, or, or you know, some kind of intergovernmental international regulation. Uh, but does it make sense to advocate government regulation? and international treaties on cyber weapons when the main users and violators are themselves governments? And should we perhaps instead, you know, given what you've said about citizen labs and, and amnesty and journalists and so on, um, be encouraged that citizen activists and journalists have managed to lift the veil of, of secrecy on these activities and th those involved when their very effectiveness depends on no one knowing that they exist, let alone what they've been up to. Right, and that's why, you know, the best disinfectant is sunlight. Mm -hmm. um, these companies have an obligation under um, the UN guiding principles and business on human rights to respect and protect human rights in relation to their services and products. Um, and so there are different pieces to this transparency puzzle. On the one hand, those companies need to commit to um, adhering to proper human rights due diligence and not just some whitewashing uh, reports or like what the NSO did, for instance, they issued this human rights policy uh, following the murder of uh, Khashoggi, I think, or a year later. And funny enough, actually, three days after um, they published this human rights policy, um, it was uh, confirmed that a Moroccan journalist, Omar Radi, had his phone, uh, phone infected using Pegasus. So it just shows you that, of course, those are um, PR exercises for them to try and avoid accountability. Um, so those companies absolutely need to be brought under the sunlight and we need to know who they are, their countries of, of origin. Um, and of course, there is an obligation or responsibility on governments to ensure that there are stricter and more robust expert controls uh, nationally. Because... But is that a question of don't hold your breath? I mean, the Israeli government regulating 
NSO so that it stops selling um, uh, spyware to, um, uh, you know, to conservative Arab monarchies? Is, is that in any way realistic? It is not. I would, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, it's not realistic and therefore um, they need to be scrutinized beyond national jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. um, and that was my second point, is that there is really a need for having a global mechanism that regulates the export sale and, and use of the surveillance technologies um, to be in line with human rights. Uh, what is the shape and form of that global mechanism? That's, of course, a very large conversation that involves member states and a commitment from them to, um, to come to an agreement, whether it be another convention uh, or some form of binding agreement. Uh, but we are at that point where there is that pressing need and urgent need, and that's why we keep calling for a for the time being a global moratorium on the sale and use of these technologies until they're um, that mechanism or global human rights framework is in place. Um, the, the situation as is, is not sustainable because these digital mercenaries continue to grow and flourish. The business is estimated at, I believe, 12, 12 billion US dollars. Um, and again, you know, if you if we look, if we just take the case of the NSO group, and it's not the only company, uh, spyware company that exists out out uh, out there, you know, and we've we've heard since the NSO, we've heard of a new Israeli company called Kandiru that that also sells um, similar um, spyware, another one called Quadream, which also sells a, so, uh, um, a form of zero click. Uh, There's spyware. also Celeron, I believe. Um, I don't know about this one, but um, I know about Kandiru, I know about Quadream, there's another one that we just um, released, uh, not released, but it was uh, brought to, to light um, in a media investigation by Forbes, it's called Paragon, I believe, so these companies keep popping up uh, because clearly they're not being regulated, they can sell their uh, surveillance technologies to governments that are hungry for it and are happy to use it however they see fit and, um, and, and can be basically not accountable for it. And therefore this business keeps to flourish. And at the same time, and this is something I, I wanted to mention earlier, I mean, one of the dangers of those, of, of those companies and the spyware that they sell is not only the violations of those individuals, but actually the impact of those surveillance operations on entire communities. You know, for instance, when a Saudi activist who lives in exile has his phone hacked, it, it, they're not only uh, monitoring his or her activity and- But all his contacts in Saudi Arabia Exactly, well. and especially yeah. those that are, um, that are living still in Saudi Arabia. And so we see as a result of that mass crackdown and, uh, and mass detentions, and even in some cases, forced disappearance. Mm -hmm. And in the context of the post-Arab Spring, those digital mercenaries have enabled Arab governments and also governments around the world to expand their repression beyond their borders, you know, or what we know as transnational repression. Well, th this is where I think it also gets interesting because several times you've referred to digital mercenaries. And every time I've heard you use that expression, I've asked myself, would it perhaps be more accurate to characterize them as digital subcontractors 
in the sense that these aren't people who are operating entirely independently and without any um, relationship to either their own governments or their own government's um, uh, regional or, or global agenda, but they're actually part of a broader um, uh, set of policies uh, by their governments. They just happen to be a private company rather than being directly in, in the service of the state. Interesting, interesting suggestion. I, I don't know if there are subcontractors, they can be, you know, if they, for instance, are providing um, a service in form of consultation, and that had happened before, you know, for instance, um, the UAE tried to uh, recruit former um, Israeli intelligence officers to build their own surveillance capabilities. Um, they've also recruited former NSA staff um, to build this project Raven, which apparently they've used also these consultants to spy on a long list of activists, both at home and abroad and, uh, and foreign nationals. And, and, and American citizens, I believe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so in this case, yes, they can also uh, contract those you know, digital mercenaries for, for that type of service, but also they can sell those products to governments. And in some cases, you know, some of those products, um, not necessarily the Pegasus, I don't think so, but some other products can be used for legitimate purposes. You know, for instance, there is this company called uh, Sandvine that sells these deep packet inspections, which allow, for instance, internet service providers to weed out any um, uh, malicious internet traffic and whatnot. But if it's used by, if it falls in the wrong hands, i.e. many governments in our region and in, in the MENA region um, or governments like Belarus, it can also be used to block websites on mass scale and, um, and, and yeah, mainly blocking websites. And so in some cases, those you know, those technologies that can be used for legitimate reasons by law enforcement, uh, like company such as the company Cellbrite, that's also sells these kind of techno hardware technology for law enforcement to be able to unlock phones. It can be used for legitimate purposes, but also what we've seen recently that it's been sold to um, oppressive regimes uh, and has been used for all the wrong reasons. And this is where you stop and ask um, about the legitimacy of these technologies in general and how can we ensure that despite of this legitimate purpose, um, they don't fall um, in the wrong hands or used to commit human rights violations. It's a very tricky equation. It is, and, and this is where I'd, I'd like to return just for a moment to, um, let's say, the, the prescriptive aspects that, that you outlined earlier. I think many people will listen to you and say, well, um, you know, a treaty on, on regulating and restricting the use of, of these um, cyber weapons, nothing against that, it's all well and good. But when you start talking about use of weapons and human rights, many people also say, well, you know, you have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you have all kinds of national and international treaties on arms exports and the rest of it. And in practice, their net effect is often um, at best uh, zero. 
and, and in practice, these treaties really only begin to be meaningful um, when they're supplemented with, as you said, you know, significant sunlight, uh, significant public pressure, um, uh, and you know, political uh, lobbying to actually translate these uh, treaties into reality. You know, I this question is is very important because it leads us to another issue, which is the issue of enforcement, you know, where not, I mean, international law exists, human rights law exists, and um, it's a question of enforcement. And as you said, clearly investigations and public pressure, which is a form of accountability, um, is important because it's not just about, you can have the perfect convention or the perfect um, law or legislation, whether global or national, but when it's not enforced, then it remains ink on paper. Um, and of course, ideally, or governments do have the positive obligation to protect and promote human rights. It's their responsibility under international law. It's also their responsibility not to violate those um, uh, human rights standards. Yet we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world where- from it, yeah. Yeah, governments, you know, democratic and non-democratic. And I think it's important to state that, um, that we're not only talking about oppressive regimes and the likes of the UAE and the Saudi Arabias of the world, but um, all forms, I mean, all governments, democratic and non-democratic, um, violate human rights, um, whether at home or abroad. And we would probably need to think of a plan B. I don't have the right recipe or solution right now for on, on this program, but um, there is, there is, you know, unquestionably there is failure in addressing these human rights violations and ensuring that the perpetrators, whether our governments or private actors like the NSO are held accountable for those crimes. Um, and that's why my job exists and many others in the space who continue to campaign and investigate and shed light and and pressure governments to take their you know responsibility and and, and um, move the needle a bit on on regulating this otherwise unregulated industry. Mm -hmm. um, finally, I'd like to turn once more to um, the private sector. Um, you know, given that we're now on Facebook Live, I think it's it's worth asking. You know, that many people are also concerned about how companies like Facebook and Google ceaselessly monitor digital activities, even if in this case it's primarily for commercial um, rather than political purposes. Does does that kind of monitoring raise similar issues? Um, and could you also tell us how such companies have used their massive digital monopolies, if I can call it that, to promote particular political agendas. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, often people bulk surveillance, you know, all forms of surveillance together, but I'm glad you made the distinction that um, it's one form of surveillance, right? It's one form of privacy violations. It's, of course, distinct from um, targeted surveillance, like using an actual spyware to hack into someone's phone or device. Um, and the companies like Facebook, Twitter, Google, I mean, all of those social media companies um, are built to 
are built on a business model that extracts as much as possible um, personal data of their users in order to sell them to advertisers. That's how they make profit. And um, of course, it raises questions about privacy of individuals. It raises questions about human agency and dignity as well. Um, if, you know how you use the platform and how all of this information that is being gathered about you, including um, your activities, your sexual preferences, your religious beliefs, your political beliefs, and um, all sorts of behaviors that is deducted from this mass scale of of um, uh, of personal data collection um, to build profiles and sell those to advertisers. Um, it raises a question about data protection, obviously, um, and uh, how, again, personal data is being exploited for, for commercial purposes and for profit. And we've made quite some jumps on understanding that uh, one of the key pillars about data protection is that users should have agency about what they share um, of themselves and about themselves, whether to governments or to private companies or even to other um, individuals where in this case we don't have that agency anymore you know anyone who logs on those platforms is by default signing up signing up on this mass collection of data and often even um, if they don't i mean you have to you know right if you set up an account it's kind of your 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 signing up. You're, they don't even give you the choice to say no. For instance, I don't want my data to be gathered and sold for advertisers. I would just want to connect and um, see my friends. But no, of course, the 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 way is built. I mean, the entire infrastructure of how Facebook is built, for instance, and how your newsfeed is curated and um, how it's determined that you see certain ads, you know, this online or ad targeting and, and whatnot, like all of those are built on who you are as a person and the data that has been collected about you. And therefore, um, when what I see on my Facebook is not what you see on your Facebook and every individual has, you know, their own um, they see different things um, based on what they like and what they're interested in and whatnot, but also because it's all curated, right? And I really like um, a report that was done by the former UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, David Kay, um, on this idea of a human agency and the use of artificial intelligence to curate um, these news feeds and whatever appears before you on your screen, uh, because the idea here is that you know freedom of expression is not only the ability or the right for you to express yourself but also to receive and impart uh, and seek information that you need and we kind of believed this idea back in i don't know maybe around the arab spring where there was this euphoria around um liberating information and that for the first time in humanity's history we have access to all sorts of information and we have the agency to seek whatever information we need but in reality everything is curated your google search is curated your news feed uh, on facebook is curated your timeline on twitter is curated and so on and so forth and now to your second part of the question uh how does this serve them to advance their own agendas um i want to speak here about the context of palestine because it's been uh an issue I've been working on for years. And of course, in May and June, uh, social media companies made our lives very busy uh, documenting cases of, of censorship and digital suppression. Um, 
because they have the ability, of course, to curate content, user generated content and to demote or promote certain content. And you as a user don't really have much agency over that, right? It's if you're even aware. Yeah, exactly. Um, as a result of that, you know, on when the Safe Jarrah campaign started and uh, started to gain momentum on social media and, and particularly on Instagram, we then saw how first hundreds of stories on Instagram were deleted. And of course, Instagram then, you know, apologized and said, sorry, it was a technical error. Um, and then hashtags would be restricted. Um, accounts would be suspended and then the most um, common complaints and grievance we've heard from users again and again is the so-called shadow banning that you your account is not suspended your content remains there but your engagement is goes super low um, to the point where it becomes noticeable to you that your usual, the usual engagement in, on your platform is not the same. And it's, to me, this is a very insidious way of censorship because if your account is suspended, you, of course, you would know, and often you wouldn't know the reason why. And that's another problem with these platforms that they are not transparent with their users, um, not with their content moderation policies or their terms of services and absolutely not with uh, their actions, you know, when a certain piece of content is taken down or a Palestinian journalist account gets suspended, usually those users don't really understand what kind of rule they've, they've violated. And then, you know, again, in our case, in the Palestinian case, we, of course, learned um, that there is a number of policies that Facebook, for instance, applies and, and governs the, the Palestinian speech in negative and harmful ways. For instance, um, many users and, and particularly journalists that cover issues in Palestine and, you know, by the virtue of discussing Palestinian issues, you will talk about groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad and um, the Palestinian Popular Front and, and so on and so forth. And those are uh, groups that uh, Facebook considers to be dangerous and therefore it doesn't allow them to have presence on the platform nor allow users to praise them or represent them. And now, um, because those platforms also use algorithms in order to mo moderate this massive scale of user-generated content being uploaded every second on their platforms, um, often um, many forms of legitimate speech that isn't necessarily you know, praise or uh, support of, let's say, Hamas, but just a journalist sharing a picture of Hamas and, and with a certain headline, that content can be taken down by the algorithm because it doesn't really differentiate between journalistic content, for instance, and someone uh, praising Hamas on the platform. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the platforms always deny that they have any political agenda. They deny that they um, are intentionally um, suppressing Palestinian voices. They repeatedly say that this is an issue of technical problems or technical glitches in the system. And they often apologize when there is a mass public scandal. Uh, but there has been enough evidence for us to say, you know, over the years that this is not just a matter of one technical error There's here. There's a pattern here. Mm. It's systematic. Mm. It's really systematic. Um, 
and it's so egregious to the point that you as a company you've you've we've been sending you and documenting for you those instances of censorship um, in Palestine in Syria in many countries and you are still yet to make concrete decisions and act, take actions that would address that. You know, for instance, in, in the events of May and June, when we said, we, when we contacted them and said, you know, there is an ongoing violence on the ground, people need to have access to their social media platforms. In some cases, it actually can save your life, you know, when your live streaming serves as a buffer zone between you and a, an Israeli police officer that is, is about to, to, to crack down on you. Um, we saw exactly the opposite like we didn't see an active engagement from those platforms to say okay there is a situation right now happening in palestine and israel let's make sure that the uh, rights of our users and particularly this marginalized community are protected but mm. we continue to see the suppression so um, despite of course all of the escalations and the media attention right. that, that was created so, so if, if someone in in nablus or manama or layun is listening to your description um, and analysis of, of these uh, various issues in terms of uh, um, digital spyware and so on, and, and, and is asking themselves, you know, what are the one or two things I, I can or should do uh, to make my digital life um, a little safer? What, what would you advise them? I would advise them, and I actually advise anyone who is mm -hmm. listening to us today to follow basic digital hygiene tips um, to secure themselves and secure their devices. And also knowing that by protecting yourself, you're also protecting others. We're functioning not on our own, but we speak to friends and we speak to family and coworkers and, and, and we're part of a bigger web. And therefore some of the practical tips I can give and I use myself is, you know, you always use a two-factor authentication um, to secure your your emails and, and accounts. Um, always try to use VPN uh, when you're browsing your web. Use end-to-end -end encrypted messaging apps like Signal to ensure that your communications is private and secure and not, you're not endangering yourself or others when you're communicating and especially if you're an activist and you're organizing uh, with others. But here, you know, I'm not a digital security expert, and I would advise people also to go on the website of Access Now and many other organizations that provide very concrete digital security support and tips. We also have a helpline um, where that provides digital security support, especially when they are in times of crisis. Um, so they're available around the clock. So reach out if you feel you are in danger or you need some digital security support. One word of caution here is that I, you know, those digital hygiene are important in general, but unfortunately in the case of Pegasus, um, they wouldn't necessarily protect you from that particular set of spyware. What is often recommended here, and um, again, I would advise people to go and seek the knowledge from digital security experts is restart your device um, frequently and again you know if you suspect if you're an activist and you suspect that your device is, uh, has been hacked or um, I would suggest reaching out to organizations that provide forensic analysis and, and support and can check your device and really see if it's indeed hacked or, or 
um, infected. Marwa Fatafta, thank you very much, um, not only for those uh, tips, but also for your uh, insights and analysis of the world of digital spyware. Thank you very much for joining us on Connections. You're very welcome, Ryan. It was a pleasure.